and welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today I am super excited that we get to bring conversation to you with Shanisha Boswell of the Black Moms blog. Shanisha, thanks so much for being here. I'm so excited that we get to talk more than when we were like meeting and passing and running around. Thank you for having me. Of course. So Shanisha and I met was it a month, two months ago? It was about a month ago, yeah. Time is flying. But we met at the Wellness Your Way Festival here in Denver, which was incredible. I don't know how I got to share a stage with you incredible rock stars like Jewel Rachel Platten and Katrina Scott and Colleen Lindholz. Like, that was an insane conversation on Modern Moms. And I was so psyched to be a part of it. And thank you so much for, you know, trusting the gut. Because as soon as I met you, I'm like, I need to talk to her. She's phenomenal. And the work that you do, it jumped out at me. You know, you do so much for moms. And that's a space that Misasha and I often talk about. It's not always the focus of the show, but we definitely are moms. And it's so important to our identity, too. So would you mind doing a quick intro of yourself? And then we can get into the conversation. So my name is Shanisha Boswell, and I consider myself a serial entrepreneur. I'm mostly known for my work with Black Moms Blog, where we talk parenting, culture, and lifestyle from a Black Moms point of view. But I also have a company called The Self-Care Retreat, where I take women on international retreat destinations to release, relax, and unwind. And I'm also a photographer in my part-time, full-time life. (laughs) I love it. And we're going to talk about all that stuff because it is very relevant to this conversation. So you know what we stand for as the show and the podcast here, but this is where Black Moms Blog, I'd love to enter the conversation with that because I used to edit the Scottsdale Moms Blog when we lived in Arizona. And... Aside from also looking around being like, wow, this community is really white, I felt that the mom's blog reflected that community and was very white. And we would do photo shoots. Everyone had their hair all like the same way. They were all blonde. I personally never felt like I fit in as a brunette. And it was probably in my head like I was trying to be them. And, but even as just a brunette in a relatively blonde white world, I felt outside. And so I want to hear about the black mom's blog because that is directly like in the same field, but totally different. Yeah. So Black Moms Blog was, I created a space within a space to positively reflect Black parenthood, right? Because I started Black Moms Blog in 2016, I believe, 2015. So it'll be four years this December. And it was because of what you said. There were a lot of blogs and platforms out there that really just reflected only a white mom's point of view when it came to parenting. And you know, some of the things we talk about on the blog are things that all moms can relate to, but there are also very specific things that are related to our culture. And it's also just a difference in seeing someone that looks like you talk about the things that you're going through. So that was kind of the gist of why Black Moms Blog I started was because we weren't being reflected in blogging at all, really. And the Black moms that were kind of blogging, they were still kind of hiding behind a certain fence and not really owning their blackness. I mean, I see this stuff. So there were two points there, the representation that matters. Yeah. And then I had another question, but let's talk about that for a second then, because as a photographer, like, you know, your social feeds, also you use your daughter as your photographer sometimes do, which is brilliant, but they're full of gorgeousness. And I'm just stepping into trying to own our social media and being comfortable being in front, you know, like in front of the lens and that sort of stuff. But there's a power of representation that you're modeling here for other Black moms. I mean, Sasha and I have talked about it with pop culture and the movies and that sort of stuff, too. But what did you notice? Was there any misrepresentations you noticed? And I think 
that there were some levels of misrepresentation as far as like, if you talk to the average white woman that doesn't have any black friends around her, the only thing she knows about black people is what, what she sees on TV, what she sees on social media. And for us, that's what love and hip hop. I mean, it's just these very aggressively untrue narratives of what the average black mom does, which is like the average white mom or the average any other mom, we go to work or some of us stay home, some of us have our own businesses. It's really a level of normalcy. And I think that's what I was trying to show. It wasn't to show anybody was better than the other, but just normal. You know what I mean? And it's crazy that even in 2019, we still have to make an effort just to show normalcy, right? Because it's just not a true representation for us that's displayed in the media as much. And it's starting to happen now, but it wasn't happening before. And so it is about normalizing all the things. Yeah, normalizing all the things. And it was funny enough, funny story, when I was trying to figure out the name for Black Moms blog, the first name I had was Black Moms Do It Too. That was going to be the name, blackmomsdoit2.com, right? Well, the issue with that is that it sounds slightly pornographic. So I was totally <laughs> going there. I was like, it sounds like you're having sex. Yes. I ended up changing the name, but that to say that that was all it was, it was to show a level of normalcy in black parenthood. And whenever I have someone ask me, why do you have black moms blog? You know, that's racist. Or why do you have this black moms blog? And I say, well, there's plenty of white moms blog. They're just not called that. Right. And it's kind of how you said about the Scott Stills moms blog or whatever. It's plenty of platforms out there where all they discuss and all that you see in representation is white parents. You don't see the other side. And so I was just a little bit more bold and blatant. And on my explanation of what it was, I could have named it Shanisha's blog, but I wanted to, and you'll find this, I'm sure you understand, and you're white women, like that is clickbait. It gets people's attention. Like, what are you doing over here? And then you go on the website and you realize that, oh, this is something that I could use too. It's just from a black mom's point of view. So I always say that when anyone attacks our blog for being any way, I'm like, you've never spent a second on the website. You've never spent a second on the Instagram account. You've never come to a meetup because if you did, you would know that our platform does not take away from anyone else's great. It just celebrates black parenting. I love that too. It's like, wow. (laughs) How much of the time on your social media and on the blog content itself do you focus on parenting versus black parenting or the things that might be specific to being a black mom in this country? I would say it's not a lot. Like we talk about hair care as a big one. Hair care is, of course, is going to be different for a black mom and a mom of a different race. Sometimes we talk about things like how black women can be seen to be stronger and how we need to be treated in the same sense, like the maternal death rates and things like that. But I'll say our average content is like a 70-30. 70% of the content is just about things that parents go through. Like we just released an article yesterday about intimacy and single motherhood. You know what I mean? That's something that any mother, regardless of her race, can go through. We talk about things regarding to self-care. You know, most of the topics are very general topics that no matter who our reader is, if she's a woman, if she's a mother, she can relate to that topic. So it's something like I tell people, we have a community members of all races. I've had Caucasian moms show up to our meetups. I've had mothers that have either had mixed children or have adopted black children that are white that follow our platform, that have questions and read our articles. So it's something that is open to everyone. It's literally from a black mom's point of view. So if you're, you know, having issues with your husband or your partner, and you're like, I need help here. We probably have an article for that on our page. So that's the gist of where it comes from. And I like that idea of, you know, I was thinking myself, I'm like, oh, because I follow you guys and I read some of the articles. I mean, and I'm like, 
sometimes people might be like, well, it seems so contrived to look for if I'm a white woman, you know, or a non-person of color to follow something called the Black Moms blog. But doesn't it take that level of, I don't know, conscious choosing, opting into something in order to begin understanding different perspectives and having different conversations? So it's okay. Yeah, I think that's the other part of it. Because for a woman of a different race to follow Black Moms blog, you're making a conscious effort to say, I'm going to click on this, I'm going to follow it. I'm going to understand that this is a group, even though it's an online forum, this is a group that's not necessarily to confirm my whiteness. It's a space from walking into it that I'm not the majority, I'm not the popular vote, but I can still relate. And it's going to give me a better understanding of women that I may never know. You know, and there are a lot of white mothers and mothers of any race that stay in their bubble and have never had a conversation with the black mother. And so hopefully even being on my platform, they're like, oh, this is just like me. Like, you know what I mean? Like that part, it's not that different. You know what I mean? Like there are differences, but it really is just a way to show that level of normalcy that, you know, when they see a black mother, they don't feel so alienated. And I I tell the story. I recently had this conversation with a father at my daughter's bus stop. We live in Midtown and there aren't a lot of black parents in the area that we do live in. And so for the last year and a half coming to this bus stop, there was his father, it's a white guy there. And the only people at the bus stop in this particular area, it's myself and there's another black mom and there's a few Indian parents, but he was the only white dad that was there. And he constantly alienated himself from our group. And recently we had a white woman that started coming to the bus stop. We've been seeing this man for a year and a half And he just like bonded with her in like a day, you know, he found his ally. And so, you know, it's something that we all kind of do, black women, white women, Asian, we all are going to go find our ally, but trying to show that that's okay to acknowledge that, but also not to hide in that bubble. Oh, I'm like, I have a bunch of questions that I have written down here. And I'm like, we're just going to jump right ahead and come back to some of the stuff that I don't want to forget about, because you're leading me right into, right, Sasha, like you agree, going right into this idea of, because... Oh, so much stuff. Power of community. We don't do it alone, right? And I want to backtrack into your personal life after this part of it, but you're really diving into this idea of friendship across the races. How do you find people who don't look like you? Because Misasha and I have different looks of our friendships in our circle, right? I look around at my closest friends and I, for the last, my entire parenting journey, I've lived in predominantly white areas. And I look around and the friends that I see on a regular basis I would say the majority of my friends are white. And then even within that, when, I mean, around the country, like I have friends who are all different races and like that, but I find that locally, I am more friends, I'm closer with black men than I am with black women. And you and I talked about this when we touched base that time, but, you know, and Misasha, I don't know if you want to lay out some of your stuff too, but like, I want to look at that because I'm like, why, you know, I have close black friends away But why in my immediate community don't I have that? And what does that say or does it say nothing? I don't know. I just I want to unpack some of that for my life. I really want to talk about this, too, because Sarah and I do have this discussion a lot. And I live in a very white community, but I largely have non-white friends. And 
I don't know if that's by virtue. Also, my husband is black. So we tend to hang out with a lot of people who aren't white. And I was telling Sarah that I feel a lot of times more comfortable in those scenarios because those are people who understand more than one narrative. And so it makes that easy, right? And conversely, right, when you had the white father at the bus stop and the white mother at the bus stop and he's like, I found my people. So I would love to talk more about that, you know, because this is something that we talked about. And I was, you know, thinking about that when Sarah and I were in Denver this past weekend, Mm -hmm. too, because it was very different. It was so great. But yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts about that as well. I mean, I think it's in partnerships and relationships and friendships, right? And connections with people. We're normally friends with people that we're attracted to. And so I think I've told Sarah this before, like, when you have a man and a woman in general, if you share a level of attraction, it's always easier to communicate across the board. When it comes to, I believe, a white woman and a black woman, the first thing that we see are differences or I don't want to offend or how do they do this? And so it's already kind of like this barrier, like this blocking thing that's going to stop it. Whereas if you meet a black man, it's like, okay, I'm a white woman, but this is a man, he's of the opposite sex. And if you're a heterosexual female, you're going to base that off of attraction. It's just going to be easier to communicate with that person. Whereas with women, it's like high school, what do you do? You become friends with women that look like you, you know, high school girls, they all look the same. They all have wear their hair the same. They all wear the same kind of clothes. And so for black and white, you know, and I live in the South, if there's no connection there, our physical impression, uh, you know, at first we're not attracted to each other, especially for both heterosexual. We don't want to be in a relationship. So where do we connect? And so you just kind of lose it. You're like, oh, well, I can't relate to her and I'm not like her. And, you know, we can't, you know, do these things together. Our hair isn't the same. We don't dress the same. She can't share makeup. We can't do these things. So it's already these automatic blockers that are put in place where you don't become friends. That's interesting. I'd never even thought about the man woman thing in understanding that. And I'm like, for my black male friends listening right now, because I'm like, I must find you all attractive. But no, really, it's an interesting thought, right? Like there's the representation of the man versus the friendship. Huh? That's fascinating. Right. And that's the thing. It's not even necessarily like I'm attracted to you, like I want to be with you, but female and a male in the same space, there is a level of attraction in some way, maybe not a sexual attraction, maybe not in that way, but we just can tend to kind of communicate a little bit easier because there is an automatic, you know, I feel an attraction of people that come together, whether it be a black man, a white man, a white woman, a black, you know what I mean? Of the opposite sex that comes together, you know? They're not your competition in a sense. They're a man in that way. (laughs) That's true. And I think if you're instantly looking for like the first, you're looking for some sort of similarity with girlfriends, right? Women tend to be community builders and you want to find the similarity. It's true. Like it's a different level. Well, the guard is like down. The guard is automatically down. It's like, I'm not looking at you to wear my makeup. (laughs) You know what I mean? So that level of competition almost or community is already just out the window. So now you could start in a, more basis form. But I tend to be really, for my real, like my circle, I am very protective of it. I have very sensitive energy and all that sort of stuff. So I'm very careful about who I spend my time with, what I spend my time doing, that sort of thing. And so I wouldn't want to compromise my energy by bringing people in who like for any other reason other than they help support me and bring out the best self in me. And it's easier to make that assumption, I think, is humans maybe when you think people look like you or they act like you or the same socioeconomic as you or it makes life easy. And it is an extra step to look for the difference and get to know somebody who looks different. Maybe just on a basic psychological thing. I don't know. Well, there's an example that I read once. I can't remember where I read this at, but it was talking about white judges and 
white inmates versus black inmates or, you know, criminals, right? And so if you have a Caucasian judge standing, you know, at the front of the courtroom and a white, you know, 25-year-old male walks in that robbed someone or did something wrong, he's going to automatically look at that white male and feel a sense of sympathy because that white male could be his brother, his cousin, his uncle, his dad, his son. If there's a person of a different race, whether it be African-American, Hispanic, whatever, walk into that courtroom, there's already that disconnect, like, well, this person can't be related to me. And so that level of empathy and sympathy is automatically thrown out of the window. And they were saying that a lot of times that's why, you know, in certain courtrooms and areas, a white judge may hand down a harsher sentence because he doesn't have that level of sympathy. And so it's the same way. It's like, we don't have that compassion. It's like, well, you're not related to me. So, you know, I don't feel like we can communicate and bond, I guess. Well, and I think having somebody in your circle that forces these conversations or forces an opening of the perspective is oftentimes the reality of what makes people jump into these kind of conversations. I mean, Misasha, you and I, I mean, we've blatantly said at the beginning of this podcast launch, I really became invested in this conversation about race when Misasha and her husband had their mixed race boys. And I'm like, I love her husband and her kids as my family because she and I are like sisters from, you know, alternate universe. So that personal touch is so critical. And I think that's why I think if we can, if you don't have that, if you don't live in an area where you can meet people who look different or think differently following stuff like your Black Moms blog or reaching out to like at least read or start thinking about it, it's on us to make that choice where we can, we have that choice. I mean, even at the festival we met at, you don't know how many messages I got from women that were in that audience that were like, I'm following you now. I'm so happy I, you know, heard about why you do this and you definitely like changed my perspective. And we were on stage for 45 minutes. You know what I mean? And so, like I told you on the phone, it's so important that we have these conversations and people run from them. They get really uncomfortable and because you automatically put yourself in a place of defense. When you talk about race, especially if you aren't black and you're talking about this racial climate, it's automatically like, I didn't do that. It's not me. It's not me. And so, you know, it makes it very uncomfortable, but it's so necessary because just by having the conversation, you're changing the perspective. If you can change the perspective of one person, you know, you may not hit everybody. You might have 90 of them think that you're completely dead wrong for what you're doing. But if you can change the perspective of five people, one person, two people, and that person touches somebody else, I mean, that's just what the way the cycle goes. And before you know it, you've made a change. So I think it's very important that you have that, that conversation with people. That's awesome. I have a few questions, but I want to go back to this idea of representation. Have you noticed in the time that you've been doing this work? And this is actually a question from a woman you did meet at that festival, who is one of our listeners. But she said, oh, if you're talking to her, can you ask? Thanks, Beth. Have you noticed a change in the marketing or materials from major corporations in terms of representation around the mothering space? Have you seen? So with the work that I do, you know, I do market and I do advertisement for big companies. And, you know, the biggest thing is that they do try to underpay a lot of their black models or their moms, the bloggers. And I know this because I speak to a lot of mothers. (laughs) I'm a part of a lot of different mom groups. And we have these conversations about what's offered to a white woman mom blogger and a black woman mom blogger. And the assumption is, is that we aren't offered as much. So we don't really know what they're paying. But we talk. So a lot of us do know what that going rate is or what this company's offered. Sometimes I've had companies that are very blatant and they'll say, hey, we want to sell to black women, but they don't buy from us. Right. And I had a very lengthy conversation with a particular diaper bag company about this. 
I had done some advertisement for them and someone put a comment under their post saying, you know, I would love to work or buy from you. And this was before they posted or they hadn't posted mine in a while. I ended up just jumping into the conversation. It was on a post of a white woman holding their diaper bag. And the black woman was like, I'd love to buy from you, but you don't have any black women on your page. Why would I buy from you? And so another a white mom commented under hers and immediately attacked, you know, this black woman, like, why does everything have to be about race? And this is a diaper post and it's not that serious, you know, and instantly like just told her that her concern wasn't a valid concern. And so I seen this and the diaper bag company, I know the person that does her IT and I was like, oh, my God, but she's freaking out right now. Like she doesn't know what to say. <laughs> and so I went under the post and I really tried to thoroughly explain to the white woman why it does matter that people look like who they want to sell to. And I, I told you, Sarah, if you flip the example, like, for example, my daughter was the only black student in her class last year. And I went to her principal and I was like, this is a problem. And I explained it to him simply. I'm like, in the area that we live, if this was a, a room full of black kids and a white mom walked in with their only white kid, I bet you in two hours that child would be in a different classroom. But because black people are always kind of forced in these positions where many times I've been the only black woman in a space or the only black person to the point where I've been talking to a white woman and she doesn't even realize it because it's so normal. You know, yeah, it's a thing. So I completely diverted from the question. But yes, I have seen companies attempt to do more diverse marketing, which is why interracial families are really big. They want to show that diversity. They want to show these things. But even still with that's kind of erasing the black voice as well, because a lot of times it's like, well, I want to show diversity, but I have to have a black person with another person, a white person or something else to show it. And sometimes it's OK just to say, no, we're just going to use a black family like, you know, a dark black family in this advertisement and it'll be OK. So, yeah, it's slowly changing, but it's still got a ways to go. That's interesting. You also said something that made me want to ask when you are the only black mom or the only black person in a room, how do you feel? I'm used to it at this point. Like, it's something that, you know, I've done my whole life. You know, I went to a pretty white elementary school. I went to a pretty white middle school. I got my first black friend in 11th grade, right? I moved to Atlanta, which Atlanta is real black. And then I was like, oh, and then I kind of like went into it really hard, right? Because I wanted to find my people. (laughs) And so it was kind of like a boomerang effect. But even for me, in my particular case, I grew up around a lot of white people. I had white friends. But for most black people... At some point in our life, we're the only black person in the space. And, you know, another short example for that, my ex-fiance is a piano player and he plays jazz piano. So he played at a restaurant here in Atlanta. And one night I was out with him. This was years ago. And there was an older white couple that I had become friends with that used to come and hear his music. And so I'm having a conversation with them and I'm telling them about another jazz club in a different part of Atlanta that is a mostly black club. And the woman looks at me and she goes, you know, I would like to go there, but, you know, we'd be the only white people in the room. And I just kind of laughed. And I was young then, so I didn't have the ready response of like, well, look around, woman. <laughs> you know, outside of me and my partner who's playing the piano, who do you see in here? But that's what I'm saying. She didn't even recognize or realize because she felt so comfortable with me. I lost color in her eyes. And she felt so comfortable to say, well, I don't feel comfortable being the only white woman. But if I were to say that to her, she would have been offended, you know. So it's just interesting. So I'm used to it. (laughs) That is interesting. And how do you find you raising your daughter in a white environment? What are the kinds of conversations you find yourself having with her that 
I mean, you only know your experience and your own truth. So I don't mean to be like that other people might not be having, but what are your conversations like? And how does your daughter, like, have she talked to you about that experience? So back to what you asked me about our content and, you know, what is it that's for every mom and what's for some mom. So last year when this happened, I wrote an article about what to do when your child is the only, you know, black person in the classroom, because it does happen. Thankfully, Atlanta's really black. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been here. <laughs> yes. It's really, really black. And so you can't really escape the blackness of Atlanta, not to mention with what I do and what her father does. She's immersed in black culture. She's immersed in black, you know, history. She's immersed in positive black experiences. She can't hide it. But some of the things that, you know, that we do focus on, like when she goes to school, her hair is different than every other student in the class. So I'll ask her very pointed questions. It's not just a question of how was your day at school? I'll say, how was your day? Did anybody give you a compliment today? Did anyone say anything about your hair? And I'll kind of try to not lead it in a negative way, but ask very directed questions to where if she forgot it or if she doesn't want to talk about it, I kind of make it aware, hey, we're going to talk about it. I surround her with black books, black dolls. You know, when I was her mystery reader at school the other day and I brought a book, Ada Twist the Scientist. I don't know if you've heard of it, but the star in the book is a little black girl. And it's something I read to her class so that they could also see, you know, so it's almost like a form of, Educating, and we talked about this again, Sarah, it's not a black person's responsibility to educate a white person on how to interact with black people. But I think that when you take certain leadership positions, you are in a position to say, hey, maybe you're doing this a little wrong and this could be changed and it's okay because you didn't know. And so I have a friend that's a white woman and she's married to a black guy and they have three mixed children. And she was like, I don't know how to ask you this. I don't know how to do my daughter's hair. I'm really struggling and it's really uncomfortable. I don't know how to ask you this. And I kind of akin it to, I said, hey, if you were to marry into an Asian family or any other, you know, culture of people, you wouldn't know how to cook their food. You wouldn't know how to adhere to their customs and their traditions. Hair day and hair care in the black community is a real culture. <laughs> and it's something that if you didn't grow up in it, you don't know that it takes 12 hours. And this is what it looks like. You got to have food, snacks and movies ready. You know, you got to, it takes a little bit more time. And so it was a conversation that I had with her and I sat there and I took one of her twins and she took the other and we had hair day and it took hours, but I had to show her, Hey, this is how we do it. And this is how you need to show your daughters. They can't just wash their hair and go. It doesn't work that way for them. So, you know, it's just different. Everything you just said made me go, I'm so glad we just recently released our hair episodes, <laughs> right? We literally just did two back-to-backs on the history of hair and did an interview about hair. It is such an important part of the black culture because that's its body and its self-care and how you show up in the world, right? How we all look. So I'm also going to look for that article about being the only black kid in the class because that is my kid's reality. So I'm, I'm all over it. My husband has been doing a great job with them and I reinforce the Japanese-ness, but I think we're going to need that one. So that's great. <laughs> I would also love to pick both of your brains because I only I have a handful of books featuring diverse characters. My kids are older now, so I'm in a different genre. And there have been so many more books that have come out, I think, in the last sort of five years, maybe like a few years. And I would love to get aside from what the conscious kid puts out. I think they're an amazing resource about children's books. But can we get a download later on afterwards of like, can I just get names of books that you love for younger kids? I have articles on that. <laughs> Oh, well, then I'll just go there and I will. (laughs) (laughs) And so back to that question of what's separate in the blog, those kind of things, because those are questions, right? 
what kind of books can I get my daughter or my son that affirm their blackness? What, you know, what do I do when my, so those are topics that we do discuss, but I do have an article about black doll makers. I have an article about black books that you can buy your kids. And some of those are not just black, but diverse, whether a multicultural, multiracial, you know, characters. And I think I always say, even for babies, like not getting black or white, getting a book that features a purple monster. You know what I mean? Just showing them that level of diversity is really good. Totally. Oh, I remember doing that when my kids instinctively, I mean, having left a place where everybody was blonde and mommy is not blonde and I needed them to be okay with their not blonde hair color. I remember going out of our way to like someone tried to buy them once a blonde hair blue eyed doll. And I'm like, "Mm, they're going to see a lot of that. I'm not comfortable with that. And, And we really got a diverse array of dolls. And those were their babies. I love that I'm hearing that from you too. Like, I've never heard a white woman say that, how, okay, my hair is brown or black or, you know, whatever. And I feel separated from the blonde hair, blue eyes. I mean, it's such a stigma, right? Like, how is that? That's insane. It is. And I think going back to Misasha's point about feeling comfortable with people of mixed heritage, having a Japanese mom and my father was blonde hair, blue eyed. And so having seen the difference growing up, I don't know if it's in your DNA, but like I just, it's how I was raised to see that there's more than one perspective and to be able to reflect on what I'm surrounded by and, you know, how do I want to create the world for my kids? So I, we have to talk about how you refer to yourself because you mentioned your ex-fiance, the jazz piano player, but I love how you talk. I mean, I mentioned it on the stage that day. I love how you talk about your status as a mother. Can we talk about the fact that you refer to yourself as a single woman with a child. Yeah. Yeah. So I consider, I've made it a goal of mine to dismantle the single mother narrative because you hear it a lot, right? A relationship ends and a woman says, I'm a single mother. But then you start asking questions. You find out dad gets the kids, you know, every other weekend, he gets them once a week. He's paying child support. He's showing up to basketball games. He's doing all these things. And so I started to, it's also in the black community, being labeled as a single mother. It's not good in any community, but especially in our community, you know, and that was one of the negative myths of black women, just, you know, being single mamas and, you know, having baby daddies and these terminologies that are really negative and just not good. Right. And so I never went into the situation hoping that I, you know, end up raising my daughter as a single woman. But, hey, that's what happened after six years of a relationship and it didn't work out. And so I always believe you write your own story. And so I chose my narrative. I said, I'm not a single mother because honestly, I'm not. Her father is extremely active. You know, he shows up. He's at every, you know, anything that she does. He pays child support. He's a great father. He's in his daughter's life as much as he's physically able to be here. And so I said, I'm not a single mother. If I take the word out, I'm single, but where am I single? I'm a single woman. I'm not a single mother. I have someone helping me. Not only do I have her father, I have community, I have family. I even give thanks to her school system, you know? And so when I talk to women, they're like, I'm a single mom. It's a negative. Nobody says I'm a single mom is a good thing. It's always like to prove something, to puff up their chest and look how much I'm working. I'm sorry. I don't want to be that strong. (laughs) I don't want to be that. I need help. (laughs) Help me. And so dismantling the single mother narrative and also the strong black woman, like, no, I need a break sometimes and I need someone to help. Can you please watch my daughter? You can go to your dad's house. 
and to the point where her father's in a relationship. And I'm like, let me meet her. When she meets our daughter, I want to be the one to introduce her. And I did. He wasn't there. That was so important to me because I needed my daughter not to have to defend me to this other woman. I'm like, hey, you're going to be with her dad. You're part of our family now because we're always going to be family. So this can either be a very great situation or it can be very bad. But we choose that narrative. I just chose to have a a more positive narrative, introduce myself as a single woman, not a single mother that automatically emits what pity. I'm not pitiful. I don't want anybody to feel pity for me. So I just changed the words. I'm a single woman, not a single mother. Now everybody can hear why I love that story because it is so powerful about the power of reframing and creating our own story, choosing how we tell it so that it's not something that we feel sorry for ourselves for or elicit that feeling from other people, but that we're empowered to make our choice, create how we want to show up in the world and get the support from people. Like you have to ask for those things, you know, speaking of storytelling, I am curious, what do you think about the representation of black fathers in the media? You know, we talked about mothers and I'm really curious about that. I feel that the representation of black fatherhood is also not a good one. Not all the time, especially in the media form. I also feel that black women are expected to take on everything. And so I always say, I can't speak on black fatherhood because I'm not a father. I can only speak on black motherhood. I actually just got a black father. His name is Chronicles of Daddy on Instagram. He's joined our blog to be our residential dad. Because I'm a mom. I can't speak on fatherhood. I just can't. I can say some things, but I don't want a man speaking on motherhood because they don't know what we go through. You know, they have their experiences in response to motherhood and we have our experiences in response to fatherhood. But I can't tell a man how to be a father or how to be represented because I'm not that. I wish that there were more spaces that more black men and more any men, any father would step up as women. We have these spaces. We have these blogs to read. We have these meetups to go to. We have these conferences. Men don't have that. They just don't. They don't really write like that. They're not going to sit down and read an article about five steps to be a better father. They're like, I'm a man. I'm not going to do that. They're not going to go on healing retreats together and bond over the fire pit. They're just not going to do that. So it's like I'm waiting and craving for the day for a man to step up and start something for men to where they have these spaces to communicate and it not be over a stripper pole or a bottle of beer. And it might have to be a bottle of beer or a case of beer, whatever. See, I don't know. You know, I want men to have those things. But yeah, I don't feel that black fathers are always positively represented because in my community, in my circle, I see many great black husbands and black fathers and responsible dads and dads that are, you know, showing up to the PTA meetings that are African-American. So it just feeds the narrative of this country to continue to push that black men aren't able and they are. So, but I don't take on that responsibility of owning that conversation. It's not my responsibility. No, a hundred percent. When as a single woman, <laughs> see how easy it is. <laughs> it is. I have changed it. Well, and I joke cause my husband travels a lot and I always like, well, I don't always, but I have referred to myself as a single married woman because half my life you just do it. And you do, I mean, it takes a, certain level of masculine energy to get the things done. When you are alone, you just got to power through. But I love this idea. I think a lot of people have a hard time asking for help. And so what do you find, you know, how do you get support in your life? What do you find helpful? What's working for you right now? I've been working on this for a long time. I've been single for three years. And I always tell people it took a lot of work for my ex and I to get to this point. Because 
we had our daughter when I was 23. He was 24. We were young. We were like getting ready to go to China and, you know, and found out I was pregnant and it changed our plans. And so we spent many years together really trying our hardest to make it work. And it just wasn't working. And we look great on paper. You know, we were this great couple. Everybody loved us. In reality, we were like trying to kill each other at home. Right. And so one night he came home and he was just like, hey, it's over. You got 30 days to figure it out. And I was a stay-at-home mom at the time. I had the blog, but I wasn't really, you know, monetizing it. So everything that we had was dependent on his income. And he was like, hey, you can move back in with your mom. And I'm like, you didn't get me from my mom's house. You're not going to send me back there. We got together. You moved in with me. I was like, no. And so that was my first step of hitting rock bottom and having to ask for help. Because here I was at this point. I think I was 26 years old at the time. And I had to ask some friends if I could move in with them, with my three-year-old. And so I had to move in with them. I had no job, which meant I couldn't give them money for rent. I had all of these items that I wanted to take with me. I had to use their space in their garage. I had to drive their car. I mean, it was a very uncomfortable situation. For six months, I did this with them. And then in the process of that as well, I couldn't find a job that didn't want me to slave away at 80 hours a week for, you know, 15 an hour. And so I wouldn't take a job. And so after a while, they were like, hey, you need to get a job. And I was like, hey, I have a job. I have a blog. I was like, I'm working on it. Give me like a few more months and I'll have it together. And in those six months, I had monetized my blog up to $16,000 and I moved out of their home. But that for me was my first step of really hitting rock bottom. Like I have to ask for help because if I don't, I got to move back in with my parents who don't even live in Atlanta. And that just was not an option for me. And so when I moved into my first apartment with my daughter, I moved back into the apartment building that her dad kicked us out of. He was still living there on the 11th floor. So I was on the fourth floor. He was on the 11th floor. And I didn't give him the option to say no. You don't have an option to be a dad right now. I'm going to force you to be the best dad that you can be so that you can eventually be the best dad that you can be. And honestly, that's what happened, you know. And so I knew that I wanted to live a certain kind of life. I wanted to have my freedom and do these things. And so I started to build community around me. I've always had a really great group of friends that believed in me and knew how hard I had worked to get where I'd gotten. And so I think that genuine connection, when I asked for help, they were more than willing to help. So yeah, just, I hit rock bottom and I knew I had to do something. And at that point, I didn't care. I was like, if you're not going to talk to me anymore, because I asked you for help, then we probably don't need to be friends anyways. And so it just got to be that bold. (laughs) So yeah. (laughs) And you know, you do some of these insanely cool trips right now with that other business that you've got going on. And I remember reading something you had posted, which was serial entrepreneur doesn't mean starting something and leaving it half baked. You're making money. It's a full fledged business. And then you do something next, like give it a year, focus on one thing at a time. And so in one of the empire building things that you've got going on, you know, you take people on, take women on trips. How do you manage motherhood with that? Like physically going away? Yeah. So a lot of what I just told you about was me and my survival state, right? Having to live with the friends, having to ask for help. Once I had finished surviving, because I was tired of surviving, I was like, I'm done surviving. I want to (laughs) thrive because a lot of us live in an element of survival. And that's a very, survival means anxiety. You're constantly looking for the next check. You're constantly, you know, and I wanted to be comfortable and thrive in the success that I had built. And so I started the self-care retreats for that reason, to teach women that it's okay to take five days to yourself, leave the child with the grandmother, the dad, whoever, and take a moment to just breathe without stressing. And so a part of that, my mother watches my daughter over the summer. She goes with her for two months. She leaves in May. She comes back at the end of July. 
And so one of my first out-of-state meetups was in California, and I went out there to Los Angeles, and we did a meetup, and there were about 50 women that came to that meetup, and this was a few years ago. And we were talking about stress and survival, and I asked the women in the room who were nursing babies and holding babies and two-year-olds running around, I was like, how long have you spent away from your children? And some of them were like, oh, my God, I've never spent a day. I've never spent a night, you know, 24 hours. You know, it was just all these answers of them telling me that they had five-year-olds that for the last five years, their kid had been right up under their armpit the whole time. And I was like, hey, you don't have to do that. You have, especially when you're married or you have an active father, you have a full able-bodied person that you could give this child to for a few days and take a moment and not feel guilty. And so... The mom guilt, it just had to end. I was like, no, we're allowed to take some breaks and spend some time alone. And so when my mother actually proposed the idea to me, because my mom is like the quintessential grandmother, she would be her, up here every day with her granddaughter. She could, she was like, hey, I want to get her for the summer. And I was like, oh, that's too long. I was like, no. I was like, how about we do two weeks? And she comes home for two weeks and goes back for two weeks. And the way things worked out, she just ended up having her the whole summer. And so we proposed it again for the next summer. And we did it this last time. And We've already proposed it again for 2020 so that I can do my retreats because that's when they're held is during my summer months. She's with my mother. And so I travel and I take women with me. So at first I did it by myself and then I took a group of women and we all go throughout the country and have a great time. <laughs> I'm sitting here being like, oh, my gosh. So because just to get the two of us, Misasha and I got together this weekend in Denver it was a clusterfuck trying to get the husbands. Yeah. Basically took an act oh, of God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sitting here being like, I freaking wrote a book called Flex Mom. I'm all about independence, doing the stuff that I think is important to nurture me. And I know all this stuff. And yet when I actually look back at the calendar, I'm like, holy smokes, when's the last time I didn't do the nighttime routine and the breakfast routine and was like for more than a day or two, right? And I think the key thing you said is without guilt. So what is that about guilt that we feel? What messaging have we absorbed? You know, because I didn't realize my mother-in-law and my mother, both are like when the babies were little, they were like, oh no, you get help. We've all had help. We either had each other as a community or I hired this person or that person. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't have to power through on my own. Like that was this revelation that my elders were not going to judge me. In fact, they were supporting me getting you know, some time to myself, but yet now that they're older and I'm actually enjoying them more, my children, I mean, I feel like I want to get away because I think it's really good for my soul, but I don't feel this pressing survival need to get away anymore. So why, when we're okay, do we drop the self-care down or the getaway time? And how do I make that happen without guilt? I don't have answers. I'm just sitting here like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I think it all depends on what you identify as self-care. For some moms, they don't need to take a week vacation. You have some moms that are like, hey, I just need to go in my room and shut the door for an hour. And so when it comes to that level of guilt, you can't feel guilty for not wanting to take the time and you can't feel guilty for taking the time, right? Because it's all about identifying to yourself, like, what is it that I need in this moment? It may not be what your friend needs. It may not be what your mom needed. You might need a, someone to come in your house and clean up. You might need a cleaning lady. You may not say, I, I don't need the retreat. I need someone to come clean my bathroom once a month. <laughs> you know what I mean? And not feeling guilty about that. But I think it's just about identifying what it is that you need 
and not, especially in the social media world that we have right now, not confusing your needs with the needs of other people, because we can sit in our house and watch 20 million people do different things from all over the world now because of the internet. And so it becomes very confusing about identifying what it is that you need for yourself. And then also the other part of that is not waiting until you get to that point that you have to look at the calendar and say, why haven't I done this in so long? Because at that point, you're, you know, flustered and you're frustrated and you're all these things. And as moms, we put everybody's needs before ourselves. So before you plan your trip, you say, what does dad have to do? Okay, Kate has to go to ballet and Timmy has to do soccer practice and I have to make sure dinner is ready. No, those things are going to happen regardless. Your child's still going to get the ballet. He's still going to get the soccer. Food will still be had. It just may not be how you want it. So it's letting go of the control freakness that moms have and saying just because he doesn't bathe the baby the way I bathe, the baby's still going to have a bath. I got to go figure it out. And he will figure it out. And that's not the best advice for married couples because that can cause a fight. (laughs) But... (sighs) I think that you do have to find a way to communicate with your partner and, and trusting when he says, what do I do? Honey, you got it. I promise you're going to figure it out and you're going to be great at it. So kind of reaffirming you're going to be okay. You don't need me to ha- hold your hand through this. I hear like empower the people to be like your supporters. God. Yes. Empower. Don't guilt people into supporting you because that gives a negative effect. If you need dad to watch baby, don't go into it. Like you never let me and I don't ever do this. Hey, I think you're wonderful. Thank you for, you know, allowing me to be home and raise this child. I just need a moment. And you're such a great father. I know that you and baby are going to enjoy your time together. And I know that you got this. You're so amazing at what you do, you know, and I just think everything you do as a woman, especially you lead in grace, you lead in love. And I think it's one of the biggest attributes that women possess that they don't necessarily take advantage of is leading in grace. So no matter what it is, whether it be partner, friends, family, your own child, lead in love. I try to use very affirming words, even when I'm upset with my daughter. I know you're better than this. <laughs> you're so great over here. Can we make it better over there? You know, everything you do, just lead it in love. And it kills 90% of the argument all the time. Oh, that feels like such powerful femininity, actually. It's powerful femininity. Why yeah. have we been trying to get rid of it? <laughs> I don't understand it to this day. No, and I love it because it is not unique to any characteristic, right? That is something for all mothers and all women, and it crosses all the lines. So I love that. Yeah, It reminds me, my friend Jamie Myers runs this thing called Shine Life Design, and she is about bringing the highest energy to people. And one of the things that she taught me was figuring out, like you said, like, what do you need? And then figuring out what that provides for you when you're making the ask you know, I'm so grateful. And I would feel so much more rested and better able. I would feel so taken care of if you did this, you know, like really being okay, being vulnerable and saying that someone else can actually help you and provide something for you is good. So I'm going to figure out exactly what my needs are at this stage now, because we take it school year by school year. And I'm like, okay, this year, what is it that I would like to feel or accomplish or have for myself? We don't, a lot of people have this mentality of living for your children I don't believe in that. I live for myself and my daughter benefits from seeing a happy, able-bodied, happy parent because at some point she's going to leave this house. And if you spend your whole life doing everything for your kids, what do you have when they're gone? And so you start early. You condition them to be okay with mom saying, I have this thing to do for myself. And so my rule of thumb is for every trip that I take on my own, I try to take one with my daughter. If I get on a plane, the next plane I get on is with her. And so I did that. I went to Denver with her and then I went to Columbia by myself. 
And now I'm going to Cincinnati with her. And then I'm going to Ghana by myself. So I put real effort into putting her on an airplane. And sometimes it's for work that I have to do. And sometimes it's pure vacation. But I try to put her on a plane and take her somewhere as well. The, that, the balance that doesn't really exist. But, you know. I think someone had posted on your the Black Moms blog about, it was in the beginning of the summer, but it was something like, travel is great education for your kids. It was along those lines. And I'm like, oh, Misasha and I had talked about how much we traveled with our kids this year and how I really see, I mean, that's, we've already stated that that's our family values, good food and travel. Yes. Those are mine too. If I spend money on anything, it's good food and travel because both of them will keep you alive. I'm excited when we all get together in real life, let's go eat some real good food next and like go somewhere fun. I am a sucker for a great meal. (laughs) Yes. And so, you know, we spent the summer traveling. I didn't document these things on social media. I mean, I have so many photos. I was scrolling through being like, where is that photo? And it was like way far back because we did so much this summer and exposed the kids to so much, probably too much, but it was really eye-opening for them. And I missed the part about interspersing that with stuff for myself. So that's a great reminder. That's why I like cruises too, because even on a cruise, I'll bring my daughter and I'll put her in daycare for an hour and go get a massage. So it's important. If I wasn't a barfer on motion sick boats, then I would totally do that too. It's a real thing. <laughs> it's a real thing. But also if you have like, I know we took a trip to Daytona for her spring break and I took her cousin, who's also a nanny. She's our nanny. Whenever I travel and I can't bring my daughter, she stays with my daughter. She's a certified nanny. So I took her on the trip with us and it wasn't so that I could really go off by myself, but I had a lot of work I still had to do. And so when I needed to sit in the hotel room and work, she took my daughter to the beach. And so that's just a part of that back to that help. Like I needed that help with me. And so I was like, hey, I got you covered. Let's go. And she was for it. So it helped me out a lot. And I want to stop and just acknowledge for a second here that we are very privileged that we can afford that kind of help and that we like can travel and do all of these things. So I just want to say I'm very grateful for where I am in that and that I think all of us are, you know, there are definitely people who can't do that. And that does change the conversation a lot, you know? And it's something that I've had conversations about with women, you know, where they're like, well, why I can't do this and I can't do that. And I am a big creature of accountability and accountability sometimes, yes, there are things that are out of your control and there's some things that are in your control. And so whenever I have a woman come to me and she tells me all the things she can't do, whether it's in regards to money or certain things, or, you know, I say, hey, You can either make that your story or you can change your narrative. And that applies to a lot of people. And so that's a very sensitive conversation to get into. It needs a lot of parameters around it. But I could have been a statistic. You know what I mean? I had no job. I didn't graduate from college. I could have moved back in with my parents, got on welfare, lived. You know, I could have done all these things. But accountability is huge to me. And so I think each person, when you truly become accountable, can really change the narrative of your life. So there's a meme right there, right there. It's a good quote that I will splice out and post on social media. (laughs) That's beautiful. I love it. Well, thank you. I'm so glad that you're here. It was good. I told Sarah, I was like, we could talk for hours. We were on the phone like a week ago and I think it was supposed to be like a 20 minute conversation. It was like an hour. I was like, okay. Oh my I God, I'm looking to forward day. to this. I know Sarah told me about that conversation. I was like, yes, she yeah. is our people. Like yeah, time to talk. Yeah. So I love it. I love yeah. it. I definitely enjoy it. If you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. 
Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't, sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com, and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Find us there. 